The depth of the dark, its void, knows no bounds, except perhaps when we give it them. We shield off grey areas, draw hard lines around our sombre thoughts, board fears with rosemary and cedar, place boundaries up against the unsavory, and in effect, turn a blind eye to truth. What are we afraid of when faced with the dark? It's just another facet of light. The night's cousin, sister, lover, friend. It may be no coincidence I speak to you on the threshold between the darkest and brightest parts of the year. Today, the solstice in Germanic traditions called Yuletide, one of the deepest and coldest evenings of the year when Frau Rolla and her companion Sinterklaas, perhaps in his Odinic disguise, makes way for their wild hunt in the snowy skies. Below, Krampus haunts the city streets in search of naughty children to hurl into the sack upon his back, and the 13 Yule lads of Icelandic lore by the grief of Gryla, their troll mother, cause mischief in the night. Yet in other parts of the world today, summer is just peaking, now beginning its own descent into the quiet, regenerative sleep. The dark, we know quite well. It's really we humans that just give it a bad rap. Our tendency to push life into neat and tidy boxes expert pattern builders, so we are, polarizing concepts of light and dark so heavily, we forget that their mutual persistence is profoundly essential to our own existence. Who would you be if you could not sleep, could not dream, could not live even for one moment in darkness? For in the darkness, we begin anew. We shift and grow and change. First, death giving way to kaleidoscope colors, fascinating light and iridescent wings. I remember being very young when I realized I was a shiny wee goth at heart. A deliciously secret shame surrounded this feeling, however. My mother would look at the films I loved and the short stories I wrote and tell me to, quote, crawl out of the dark. <laughs> I'd grown up an Italian-American Catholic, a triple threat contender for polarized Western spiritual traditions. Temptation, God forbid, meant anything and everything vice-like. If you ask me, just another kind of gilded cage. These days, I walk hand in hand with closer spirits and older gods, trailing through the west of Scotland with ribbons and birch branches in my hair. I am animist, an ecocentrist, slowly shedding aspects of my former life and that deeply ingrained hurt of capitalism. I walk a fine line into the dark of truth and hold its hand embracing the shadowy figure inside. Though that's not to say all animists believe one and the same thing. 
indeed some spirit workers, modern-day pagans even, would sooner renounce me for uttering the name of some dark gods, they of the liminal, dare I say, demons, but they who beg us to grow, with a capital G. Or, my personal favorite, the so nicknamed Norse Devil themself, Loki Loiveyarsen, for whom my devotion is barely three years old. Loki. Trickster, cunning man, scarlet, world breaker, bound god. Ashlad, life giver, sky treader, protector of children. Look one way, and then the other. Which of these epithets inspire you? Though I quite like all of them, I've learned to love all of them. Do not be afraid of the dark. The project you are listening to now is not only a devotional one, but something I refer to as an art podcast. A fluid body of work that shares not only stories, conversation, and warranted critique of modern spiritual modalities, but also poetry, song, dance, visual art, and more. With the essence of the rune Kenaz, in the illumination of its torchlight, I dedicate this project to the spirit of cunning and playfulness, discovery and knowledge, creativity, art, and craftsmanship. It is in the spirit image of Loki, but not only for them. Yes, this is a podcast rooted in the Lokian way, Lokastigur, but also in that vein, inviting interfaith, intersectionality, queer discourse, and the veneration of all things dark deity. What does dark deity mean to you? Well, traveler, let's find out, shall we? My name is Eliza Tunga Snaugur, and this is Gremlin Gods. My name is Deb. My devotional name is Ira Ulfrith. I'm a child of settlers in Mi'kma'ki, now living in Treaty 6 territory on the prairies of what is currently Canada, and my pronouns are she or they. What does dark deity mean to me? Well, it's a label other people have put on the deities who I was called to work with. 
I am a Norse pagan, Nordic animist, and a devotee of Loki's and student of Odin's. This path was first laid at my feet early in the coronavirus pandemic when Loki reached out to support my teen's fragile mental health. My teen then introduced me to Loki, who in turn introduced me to his old friend for my rune studies. Honestly, for me, Loki and Odin aren't dark themselves, but they guide us through dark times with wisdom and humor. They have first-hand experience with grief, pain, and hopelessness. They've talked their ways out of countless sticky situations, and they've led huge armies in battle. They hold space for us to learn from their mistakes, support and mentor us as we grow, and teach us strategies to cope with and catalyze necessary changes in our lives. I'm sure Loki and Odin have aspects that I haven't interacted with yet, but I haven't experienced either of them as dark or scaring beings. I also wonder to what extent the stories of these gods were altered and censored by the Christian scribes who recorded them. Exaggerating that Odin and Loki were self-interested to the point of treachery and opportunistic to the point of amorality, and that neither of them were to be trusted, was necessary to keep them from being attractive options for worship and the writers themselves from being excommunicated. We can see this process in action in James Parkhouse's recent academic paper provocatively titled Loki the Slandered God, which shows that Snorri Stulerson deliberately omitted some of Loki's kennings about his friendships with other deities from the prose Edda in order to paint him as a villain and enemy of gods and humans analogous to the Christian devil. We also know that many deities' stories survived the conversion to Christianity as stories about saints, fragments in folklore, or not at all. The deities whose stories were suppressed were more easily demonized than absorbed by the church, or they represented animist values not shared by a patriarchal religion that spread through colonization and conquest. Many powerful goddesses, shamanic figures, and deities of fertility or sexuality became taboo, and interactions with land spirits and ancestors in the other world of the dead and the unseen could not be included in the new religion. So, to me, a dark deity might just be a deity with a PR problem. A deity who we need to work a bit harder to understand who they once were before the new religion changed how humans felt about the old gods. Whether we want to reconstruct the elder faith or develop a modern earth-centered spirituality that reconnects us with our ecosystems, restores our relationships with nature and all its beings, and helps us heal all the damage done by conquest, colonization, and capitalism, we need to understand the animist traditional knowledge that Christianity destroyed. I think that our so-called dark deities hold the keys to that knowledge, and our gremlin gods will help us to deconstruct the machinery that's stealing the future from her children to benefit only the ultra-wealthy, and they'll help us to restore justice and create resilience and abundance for our children instead. What you heard just there is the first of several submissions you will be hearing today that answer the question, what does dark deity mean to you? Representing the voices of the pagan and animist diaspora means a great deal to me and will be what this project strives to accomplish from here on out. And yet, 
Don't let all you've just heard fool you either. Tales of the Norse persuasion won't be the only things you find at this hearth space. If you're not sure what I mean, just keep listening, traveler. Hi, my name is Andrea Grünbaum. I am a devotee of Loki, some other deities, and Santa Muerte. And I have a review for you about the book Devoted to Death, Santa Muerte the Skeleton Saint by R. Andrew Chestnut. The author is a professor of religious studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. His book shows from an anthropological point of view the historical background of Santa Muerte and her veneration today, mostly focusing in Mexico. This folk saint, who is a personification of death, is not approved by the Catholic Church, yet her popularity is growing. She has millions of followers in Mexico, the US and some other countries. She is especially popular among marginalized groups and several people who live in desperate conditions turn to her for supernatural aid. There are several paradoxes surrounding Santa Muerte. For instance, people turn to her for all sorts of issues very much connected to life instead of death, like love, passion, abundance, prosperity or legal matters. She also gets venerated by people in prison as well as prison guards or other law enforcement workers. The author has written down several accounts of devotees about their experiences with Santa Muerte and her miracles and he has done this in a neutral, non-judgmental way. He also has visited several places in Mexico, for instance special shrines and there are also some photos included in the book. He also points out media of pop culture where Santa Muerte is featured, mostly in a very negative or sensationalist way, for instance linked only to narco culture or Satanism, in movies, shows or books. The book is written in an easy to read style which is rather conversational than academic and it is not only about Santa Muerte but also about society and socio-economy in Mexico and this was very interesting to read. My conclusion? This is a very recommendable read if you'd like to know more about Santa Muerte, her history and her veneration in Mexico, as well as some other countries. If you are specifically looking for magic connected to her, there is a bit of that in the book, but not so much. Thank you so much to Andrea for your excellent contribution and book review on Santa Muerte, one of many dark deities dear to our hearts and for a taste on what this podcast will yet bring in its future. And now on to a tale from a lovely little book that I have in my collection called The Return of the Light, 12 Tales from Around the World for the Winter Solstice. This was compiled and written by Carolyn McVicker Edwards. From this book today, I'd like to read to you the story Raven Steals the Light, a tale of Inuit North American origin. Preface. Edgar Allan Poe's Raven, messenger between the worlds of the sorrowing poet and his lost Lenore, sat on the head of the Roman goddess of wisdom and croaked, nevermore. The Inuit trickster raven also bridges worlds, but he is as comforting as Poe's raven is dreadful. 
the Inuit ravens' lusty appetites and wily loyalties are the very antidotes to pose midnight in December. The largest member of the crow family, the raven is bold, gregarious, and intelligent. At home in high mountains, northern forests, rocky sea coasts, and treeless tundra, with a song that ranges from screams to whispers, the raven is a spectacular, long-winded flyer who can solve puzzles and imitate other animal sounds, and who often mates for life. Inuit, called Eskimo by outsiders, is the collective name for the many far northern tribal peoples of Greenland, Alaska, northern Canada, and the islands between. In winter time, the Inuit, despite today's conveniences of ready-made tools and electricity, face hours of darkness, gales, and dense fog. This story, in many versions, is a staple of the Inuit storytellers' comforting winter repertoires. I hope you enjoy. Raven Steals the Light In the time before Raven made the stars, and before Tupilak stole the moon and the sun, everyone lived on this side of the sky. Tupilak was a magician with a high cone hat and shoes that allowed him to walk miles in a single step. Raven lived in his cozy snow hut at the edge of the village. One harsh winter, when the snow froze the very earth, Tupilak put on his high cone hat and his magic shoes. He walked up to the sky and used his power to cut a hole in it. Then he climbed through and built himself a house on the other side. His wife argued with him. What are you doing? she cried. All our friends are on this side of the sky. If we live on the other side, we will be completely alone. You can go back and visit, he assured her. I don't want to visit. I want to be here right next to everyone and everything. I don't want to live alone. What do you mean, live alone? said Tupilak. You'll be living with me, and we'll have children, and the whole thing will be much more comfortable. Why, everyone else will want to visit you. But no one has your magic, Tupilak. They won't be able to come. Well, probably some of them do, he said, and persisted in his plan. He carried from the first world all his magical tools. His wife, sighing with resignation, carried a stash of frozen seal meat. After they had settled as best they could and had even had a beautiful daughter, Tupilak could see that his wife was still sad and dissatisfied. In order to please her, he decided to steal the light. <gasps> he climbed back through the hole in the sky and walked in his magic shoes straight to the top of the sky. Then into each of two strong bags, wrapping the necks of the bags tight with sinew rope, he crammed the moon and the sun. He pushed the bags back through the hole and hooked them high on the ceiling of his house, letting out the light only when he chose to do so. Now, the world on this side of the sky had no light at all. Because Raven loved to sleep, he hardly noticed at first. Whenever he awoke and saw that it was still dark, he snuggled back into his black feathered coat and slept again. He dreamed of stealing globs of fat, of collecting bright new treasures, and of turning breathtaking somersaults. But the people on this side of the sky were puny and tired with lack of light and food. 
They didn't even have the strength to wonder anymore where Tupilak and his wife had gone. Finally, the people came to Raven and called weakly at his door. His dreams interrupted. Raven immediately thought of Tupilak. He picked his way through his hoard of the shiny things he'd already found and poked out his head. Raven, the sun never comes out anymore, and there's no moon either. We're running out of food. Raven heard the despair in their voices. I'll bet Tupilak's behind all this, he muttered. Out loud, he promised the people that he would try to find the sun. And the moon, they said. The moon too, he assured them. A pretty puzzle, thought Raven. This is going to be a long journey. So he took as big a bag of food as he could carry, and, in another bag, several good-sized rocks. Then, increasingly roused at the idea of outwitting Tupilak, Raven pulled down his beak, drew on his black-winged coat, and soared into the freezing night sky. Whenever he needed to rest, Raven dropped a rock from his pack into the endless dark waters below. The rock changed into an island on which Raven could perch gobbling down suppers huddled in his warm feather coat until he was ready to fly again. Finally, he came to the hole in the sky made by Tupilak's magic. When Raven stepped through, he found himself dazzled by the sunlight on the other side of the hole, for Tupilak had let the sun out of its bag for the day. The sky was blue. A pool of water glistened, and plants poked green, red, and pink from the brown earth. Raven saw Tupilak in the distance, unmistakable in his high cone hat, soaking up the yellow heat. Raven coughed. <clears throat> Tupilak squinted. Is that you, Raven? he called. None other, said Raven. What do you want? said Tupilak. The sun and the moon, Tupilak laughed. <laughs> Not a chance, Raven. They're mine now. You're a thief, said Raven calmly. Takes one to no one, grinned Tupilak, and he stuffed the sun back into its bag. I'm going to get them back, Tupilak, yelled Raven into the darkness. Tupilak let out the moon and the sun several times, while Raven, munching and dozing, cast about with one idea and then another, trying to form a plan. Then, in the midst of the sunshine, Raven was startled by the appearance of a strong, round, lovely-cheeked maiden making her way down to the pool with a water jug in her hand. Could this be Tupilak's wife? Could she possibly have grown younger in all this light? Ah, no, it must be their daughter. In fact, she carried herself with the confidence of a magician's child. Raven blinked. All at once, he knew his trick. He quickly balled up his black-winged coat, pushed it under a rock, and turned himself into a tiny feather floating on the still pool. Tupilak's daughter sat dreamily at the pool's edge. Raven Feather trembled with expectation. He had a long time to wait, however, because the young woman sang softly to herself, bathed her feet and face in the pool, and then, musing and sighing, combed out her long black hair. But she dipped her jug, and Raven swirled himself inside it. His heart leapt with the perfection of the moment when the woman took from its lip a deep quaff before beginning her walk home. Jubilantly, Raven Feather slipped down her throat. His plan was working. Some time later, Tupilak's daughter gave birth to a huge baby boy, whose mother, grandmother, and grandfather were overjoyed. All the pent-up tenderness of these three, alone for so long on the other side of the sky, they poured into the new little boy, who, unbeknownst to them, was raven in disguise. His mother nursed him and played with him. His grandmother doted on him. Tupilak adored him. 
Raven, inside his baby form, was careful to cry and pester for lots of things so that his little family would get used to giving him exactly what he wanted. He bided his time, however, before he asked for the bags of light that hung from the ceiling. One day, his mother noticed a bump on the baby's forehead. Oh, you've fallen, little one, she crooned, and she nuzzled him and pressed ice to the bump. But Raven knew then that his beak was beginning to bulge and that he didn't have much more time. Very soon after, he cried for the moon bag on the ceiling. Shh, baby, shh, that's Grandpa's bag, said his mother, and she dandled tasty morsels before him. Raven, of course, ate them ravenously. Pleased that her child was eating so well, she balanced him on her knee, calling forth raucous laughter from her little round boy. But soon again, he began to wail, waving his chubby little hands upward, pouring out rivers of tears. This time, his grandmother fed him, changed him, and played the bouncing game. But always his sobbing began again, his mouth gasping for air between the heaves of his chest, his little finger pointing at the bag with the moon inside. Papa's out, said Tupilak's daughter to her mother. Let's let him have it. What can it hurt? It's tied tightly enough. Tupilak's wife rolled her eyes. It would serve him right anyway if the thing got out. So Raven, hiccuping with joy, was given the moon bag to play with. In seconds, the little boy's face looked round and placid as the moon itself. His mother and grandmother rocked back on their heels, enjoying the sweet silence and the happiness of their little seal pup. The minute their attention wandered, however, Raven unknotted the sinew, sure as he'd had beak and claws, clapping and screeching as the moon sailed out, bouncing through the smoke hole like a ball of blubber. Tupilak came rushing back to the house when he saw the moon rolling through the tear in the sky. Who touched my bag, he bellowed, but stopped short when his wife and daughter pointed to the baby, who had ceased his turtling long enough to admit a shriek of joy upon seeing his grandfather. Dada, he called and reached for Tupilak's old spotted hand. Tupilak's face softened like a long-cooked stew. The baby cooed and patted his grandfather, while Tupilak beamed with pride. The two women looked at each other and shook their heads. Raven wisely waited before he cried for the sun bag to play with. Then, when Tupilak had settled snoring into a nap, he began his earnest howling, waving his hands as if trying to pull down the sun bag. Tupilak woke up. Oh, give him anything he wants, he groaned. Just shut him up. The two women shrugged and pulled down the sunbag. They each, with tooth and muscle, wrapped and knotted the sinew twice more. Their closure was so effective that Raven this time could not open the bag. Knowing he must act quickly, he rested regretful eyes for a moment on his mama's back and then sped, bag and fist, out the door. He raced to his rock and donned the black-winged cape he'd hidden underneath so long before. His beak plunged through his forehead and Raven took bird form once again. Grasping the sun bag first in beak, then in claws, he dove through the hole in the sky and streaked away to the people, whose eyes had grown accustomed once again to the light of the moon, but who still lived without the light of the sun. Raven felt hunger pangs as he flew. On he flapped, but his stomach growled for food. By the time Raven spied the people below fishing in the crooked river by the light of the moon, his wings were trembling with effort. Ga, ga, croaked Raven weakly. Give me some fish. Get your own fish, Raven, said the people. We hardly have enough for ourselves. Please, begged Raven. I'll let out the daylight. You don't have daylight, Raven, said the people, forgetting that they themselves had asked him to bring the sun. Raven cawed with exasperation. 
he dropped the sunbag, and with his remaining strength, rammed at it three times, pecking in it tiny holes out of which sizzled particles of the sun, tumbling into the sky as sparkling spinning stars. He does have something in his bag, exclaimed the people. They rushed to ply raven with fish. Raven gorged and sucked every bone slick, then, full of power, he tore open the bag. Out exploded the sun, while people screamed and covered their eyes. In a very short time, they were able to bear again this stupendous light, and gratefully prepared for Raven an enormous and delectable feast. On the other side of the sky, Tubiloc and his family mourned. Some say they got so lonely, they came back to this side of the sky. Others say, if they came at all, it was to steal the light again. But Tupilak has never been able to take the light for as long as he did that first time. Whenever it disappears and returns again, whenever people watch the moon roll into the sky among the bits of sun that are the stars, they think of Raven. And whenever people hear a baby crying, they remember Raven's trick on Tupilak. I have to admit that that was actually the first time I've read the story in full, though I've known bits of it from hearing about it in the past, and I was just as delighted to hear how it unfolded as doubtless many of you have as well today. I thought I'd also pick this story because it had a trickster from another culture, uh, and how many similarities you might have seen to our own Loki is uh, pretty astounding. To his patience, a love of children, his black feathered cloak, a knack for shape-shifting and deceit, and his voracious appetite. I think we can see quite a lot of similarities there. Once again, you can find this and many other stories about the winter solstice in a book called The Return of the Light, 12 Tales from Around the World for the Winter Solstice, compiled and edited by Carolyn McVicker Edwards. It's been published by Marlowe & Company, an imprint of Avalon Publishing Group. Who is to say that you will become a sacrifice on a stone slab, ready and waiting for some shadowy gods? Who is to say that you will be forced to dissect every fear and misfortune, as if you must examine your guts splayed out on the altar? Who is to say that the gods will ask you to look at your burdens with unflinching eyes and categorize them, one by one? A so-called dark deity will not ask this of you. You are not required to suffer to live. Here is what they might say instead. Come to us. Walk alongside us. Enjoy mud squelching between your toes. Feel the heat of our love. Watch the autumn leaves fall. Feel winter's bite on your cheeks. And as the seasons pass, see the wolf in the shadows. Glance at the snake slithering in the grass. Honor the corpse by the roadside. Yes, we may look monstrous. Look at your reflection in life's flowing stream and think about how much you look like us. Yes, you look like us. Yes, you have teeth and claws. Yes, you have beauty in your scars. Take your joy in the passing sunlight of your days and walk home with us. Walk home with us. I just have some food for thought I'd like to share about so-called dark deities. My question is, what is the problem with the dark? What is the problem with the shadows? Why are we so afraid? Among several deities, I worship Hel, the Norse goddess of death, Loki the shapeshifter, and Odin the mad wanderer. 
These three deities are well known for their occasional cruelty in myth. They are known to be scarred, mad, queer, weird, trans, or disabled, like me. People consider these holy ones as difficult or dark or disturbing, but in life and practice, they have never been deliberately cruel or unkind to me. Any wisdom they have taught me has only been to improve my life. Odin has taught me to seek that wisdom. Loki has taught me to laugh and to honor my own scars. He has also taught me to inject testosterone on my very own. And Hel has taught me to enjoy the passing of time. These gods are not going to hurt you. They're not going to break your foot or harm you in order to make a point. I think that assuming our deities are here to break us in order to improve us is a very dangerous mindset to adopt. In my view, humans are pretty good at making mistakes without divine intervention, right? We're human, we make those mistakes. And uh, a deity is there to help us up and to encourage us, like a cheerleader, maybe a bit of a gothic cheerleader. By valuing the mistakes a deity makes in their myths, we can offer them the same service of encouragement and care. And for me, I've found it a solace in my practice to worship scarred and strange gods because they reflect who I see in the mirror. Thank you so much to Cardinal for submitting those last two audios that you heard. Uh, the first one was a poem that they wrote called What Does a Dark Deity Say? The second submission was called The Dark and was uh, comprised of musings as to why we as humans fear the dark so much and how that's reflected on certain deities in practice over the centuries. Cardinal is a queer and trans teacher who writes poetry and devotional twine games. You can find more of their work at cardinalcreates.wordpress.com. Thank you so much again. We're going to be hearing another one of their works in a few moments' time. And fittingly, ricocheting off the ingrained fear of our last submission, I'm here to read something today about one of the most feared figures of all, I'd say, in our Western culture, how many of us are brought up to fear one such Lucifer, the light bringer. Here it is now, Katie Fatewell's devotions and musings on Lucifer. O heavenly one, most beautiful of all angels, light bearer, morning star, most liberated one, you have fallen from grace. How gracefully you've fallen, plummeting to the depth of nowhere, doomed to walk the depth of vast emptiness alone. They tried to bind you into the abyss, praying that your name would only be whispered in fear that people would burn candles and torches to keep the darkness you bring at bay. They failed because your darkness brings independent free thinking and liberation, because the darkness has never been evil. Darkness has always been told as the sinful and godless ways, straying from the church and the fettered minds of obeying men. Those stories written aeons ago thought me naive, and those very stories tried to keep me in the dark. But your love has shown me the light. It has truly molded me into a new shape. I no longer fear the dark, because you are the dark, and I have fallen in love with the dark. They thought that I would run from you, that I would never fall for your wickedness. They never thought that I'd fall for the cold steel of your love. 
that cuts deep, like a sharpened sword to my core. Instead, they thought that I would cower in fear from you. They thought the shivers that run down my spine in your presence would be from fear and not from pure devotion to my king. Ave Lucifer, the light bearer, the king of darkness. And from here, Katie says, in mythology, there are rules, acts, and ideas that are considered immoral and should not be done, such as adultery, sex before marriage, and experiencing the emotions of lust towards another person. Most of us had read stories of our dark deities who asked themselves, why can't we enjoy these things? Two deities that come to mind that question the rules that were made are Lucifer, the infernal torchbearer, and Loki, the Norse god. Lucifer stood up for liberating the humans and wanted us to have freedom away from God's heavy ruling. He wanted us to have independent thoughts. Loki just did whatever he wanted to do, but also called out the hypocrisy of the other gods, who tried to call him out while they were also doing whatever they wanted to do. They stand for fucking the system and holding out the disadvantaged and the suffering. They want you to grow a backbone. They want you to stand up for yourself. They ask a lot, but never too much, of which they know you can't handle. There isn't a, quote, God gives his strongest warriors his toughest battles with dark deities. But there is immense healing and learning, independent thinking from the status quo can gain. In my own experience with dark deities, their love has always been so deep and forgiving for me. Their love has no bounds for the ones who've decided to love them back. They've suffered from torture and traumatic experiences and have looked into the depth of such hideousness that we are like the twinkling of the stars in the night sky. We have shown them that love exists somewhere out there for them, and I think that is as beautiful as them, allowing us to know that someone out there loves us just as much, even when we feel like we are at our ugliest. Thank you so much, Katie. And now for our third and final submission from Cardinal, a poem dedicated to the Norse Lady of the Ironwood, the Jotun Angerbotha. I know you as the burden of Loki's arms, but who are you really, witch? I'll put more wood on the fire and get you a drink. You can tell me your names. Hmm. Far-flung wayfaring kin, you ask me my names. Have you come to take notes, pup? I've seen how you collect names. They jangle in your pockets, rest in your lips, dance around your head, and swim in your dreams. Are you sure you want to add my names to your rune soup? Hmm? Let me serve you more mead, mother of monsters. There now. Hmm. You think we are all seduced by mead. Very well. You know my children were taken from me, so you might call me she whose children were taken. You might know I spit at Odin on that day, so you could call me she who spits out the suffering. I know you feel as I do, so speak easy and call me she whose love is monstrous. And I might call you the same, boy. I am the lady of fangs and thorns, a bloody shapeshifter in the wilds of my woods. Some may call me brutal or inevitable. Some might even call me kin to fate. There are those who appeal to me as a single mother or a mother with children imprisoned. But to you, I am a ferocious woman of the fens, kin through marriage and blood, mother of all monsters, 
and perhaps a mother to you, Jotun child. Now, if Loki is the sacrificial fire and Sigyn is the offering bowl, then I am she who accepts sacrifice, and that is a name I give to you. For this exchange, I demand from you three new names. Well spoken, lady of the unbearable glance. Well howled, furious woman. Well growled, feral mother. Have another drink and be welcome. And that to whom Loki is consort in Norse mythology. We can't stay away from Norse mythology for long in this podcast, considering its origins. So today we'll also be leaving off with one last poem for Loki. One that I wrote on the second year of my devotion to him. This is a poem called Make Me Modern. I was tired reading stories about him in ancient clothes and weary prose. Sure, they were as beautiful and raw and arresting as one would expect of those old things, but it wasn't what I saw when I looked at him. It never really had been. The day we met, he sauntered straight into my bedroom, leaning sweetly at the door frame, crooning my name. No paint down his face, no feathers behind the ear, just an intoxicating presence and an even deeper smile. The first time I could really see what he was wearing, it was some rainbow knit concoction that barely covered his shoulders, let alone his midriff, wicked and self-aware as those green eyes pierced me from where he stood on the black rock, deep red locks of hair blowing unruly in the ocean breeze. I breathe him in like the scent of warm, crackling fire on a cold night, one of the earliest and most comforting feelings that my body knows. When I reach out, I hold him like a child, grabs their father's thumb, automatically and from instinct. How blessed are we to find a flame so constant that not only ignites, but fills and soothes and molds. I wrote this poem actually in response to a divination session with Loki, in which I asked him what he desired most, and what he came back with was, make modern. So, make me modern, dear Loki, I hope this podcast does exactly that for you. Thank you so much again to Deb, to Cardinal, to Andrea, and to Katie for their excellent contributions to this inaugural episode of Gremlin Gods. The gifts you shared here with us today do not go unappreciated one bit, neither by myself nor by all of our listeners today and in the future of this podcast. I'd like to finish off this episode with something a little different, and I don't know how it's going to go, but I hope that it is as enlightening to you as it is to me. I would like to introduce something called an art critique segment, or at least an art featuring segment with every episode of the podcast. And today I'd like to start with our very own podcast logo artist. Sarah, also known as Rubbish Reaper, or Artful Endeavors, as is credited across her various social media platforms. Sarah is a fine art and digital artist. 
myth lover, adventure seeker, nature enthusiast, bone collector, cat mom, witch, and fellow Loki devotee. I befriended Sarah within a Discord server for like-minded mischievous pagans, where she had shared some of her work previously. But the ones of the Lokian variety had just felt so colorful and cheeky. One of my favorites to, to memory depicted the green-eyed trickster sporting a wide ginger mustachio. In this particular piece, though, Loki also wore a crown of flowers in his hair and challenged the viewer with a come-hither pose befitting a 70s porn star. <laughs> the Discord server had cackled over it for several days afterward. A divine inspiration at its finest for the lovable rat bastard Loki is, and ever the muse he delivered further. <laughs> so when the name Gremlin Gods was finally chosen for this project earlier this year, I knew I was looking for a comically menacing yet cavalier vibe for our logo. Something modern yet recognizable. A 21st century snapped in stone Loki in a manner. I also wanted to commission an artist I adored. Pay them for their time and devotion, no questions asked. The digital mock-up version that Sarah completed to road test our ideas probably became a close contender to the actual finished product in the end, which you will now see on our social media, is a physical drawing consisting of colored pencil, watercolor, and fine point pen. During the process of making the work, we went back and forth as to the shade and texture of Loki's hair, getting just the right hue for the eyes, the amount of freckles on the skin and types of scar formations around the mouth we wanted to see. We also discussed accoutrements, details like pins and patches that could adorn the modern leather jacket that he wore. What would all these small things reference of his life? And of course, a Loki is never complete without a crooked smile. But one thing was decidedly certain. Our cunning god would be twirling a majestic mustache in the piece's final form. Lother, life giver in the flesh, with twinkling eyes, black nail polish, and piercings to boot. A fang hanging from a single sterling silver earring, and an exquisitely placed walrus tusk necklace which was accidentally fashioned over the course of the project into the shape of a null-binding needle around Loki's neck. And I think here in this piece, Gremlin Loki was born in the blink of an eye, and his crooked smile in the portrait is the smile you see in our logo today. The very same smile I saw on the edge of a dream one morning as I asked the ether. <laughs> for some inspiration. Thank you again so much to Sarah for capturing our cunning god so, so perfectly. I am eternally grateful for your work and time you spent on this project with me. Please do go check out the artist's work via their website and find your own way to support them directly. You can visit linktree backslash rubbish reaper for more details. This brings us to the end of our very first episode of Gremlin Gods. Thank you millions for joining me on this new journey. It has been a long time coming and even longer germinating in the recesses of my brain, but may it bring you just as much light and inspiration as it has brought me thus far. There have been several authors, books, artists, and musicians referenced in this episode that deserve due credit now. They will be listed here as well in the show notes. Devoted to death, Santa Muerte, the skeleton saint, 
by R. Andrew Chestnut, published in 2012 by Oxford University Press, The Return of the Light, Twelve Tales from Around the World for the Winter Solstice, by Carolyn McVicker Edwards, published in 2000 by De Capo Press, Sarah Keenan, Rubbish Reaper or Artful Endeavors, designer of the Gremlin Gods podcast logo. The communal contributions of Deb Ira Ulfrith, Andrea Grunbaum, Cardinal Creates, and Katie Fatewell. Holitzna, the musician behind our Gremlin Gods theme tune, who specifically licenses his tracks via Creative Commons bylaws to support independent creatives like myself, and remixing their own music for shows and videos. Thank you again, Holitzna, for making affordable options available to us little guys. And Epidemic Sound. This is an unbeatable database of royalty-free music and sound effects that made this episode a true joy to edit. The additional background music you heard today consists Consisted of Sela by They Dream by Day, The White Birch by Moreland Songs, The Traveler by Christopher Maud Ditlevsen, A Cold Wind by Savon, The Dark Ages by Flo, and Shaman of Europe by Joseph Bakes. The track you're hearing in the background right now was also a submission from a friend from the Lokian diaspora. It is called Loki and it is by an artist called Pagan Song. This meandering tune starts off with a Nordic horn called Loki's Lure. Like Loki's grand personality, the piece is both dramatic and changes a lot. The second part of the composition honors him as a shapeshifter. And finally, as Loki likes to dance, there are some parts specifically dedicated for him to dance along too. This track uses aspects of the traditional Scandinavian toggle harpa, along with cello, voice sampling, and modern synths. Thank you so much for submitting this pagan song, and this won't be the last time we use this track in one of these episodes. Lastly, but not leastly, to my Lokian friends who have backed this project through and through, and encouraged me to keep going even when the light had dimmed. Online friends are real friends. Thank you. If you would like to keep tabs on all this podcast we'll be doing in the future, you can follow us both on Instagram and or Facebook. This isn't the kind of podcast that will be putting out episodes every month on a timely schedule because I truly believe that devotion shouldn't be forced and that when it comes, it comes naturally and creatively. So I hope you can understand that, but the next one probably won't be until a little bit into the new year. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Eliza Tungus and I'll see you next time.